The Bible reading today is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, find the page in a moment, verses 1 to 6, then 15 to 19a, and it's to be found on the Church Bible in 1817, 1817. Paul, an apostle of God of Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. Uh, it is great to get together to talk about an amazing passage like this. But before I do, just spend uh, just a moment to reflect on the gala, if you were there or if you weren't there, just to hear uh, just a few of the, the highlights of that. For me, it was walking into that uh, room and just seeing how blessed we are to have an amazing auditorium to look forward to, to start meeting in, uh, hopefully not too far down the track. Uh, but just real encouragement, everything been working towards is slowly coming together was magic. Uh, Another encouragement was the amount of people who were involved in the night to make it such a great success. People who donated stuff, organised stuff, arranged things, cleaned things, decorated things. Big thank you to all you guys and your team. I know it was a big team effort. That was a great encouragement to see so many people involved in that as well. Uh, the amount of people who invited um, people from outside of church and even people and friends who haven't got a church background and to see the way that was received by them was a real encouragement. A fundraiser is not really an outreach event but I think it had a real positive atmosphere of just what church community looks like and just rejoicing what God has been doing was a real highlight as well. Fourth thing was the amount of money raised. I mean the generosity blew all our expectations away thinking about it, planning about it, organising it. Um, just a, a little bit more of a break up so on on the night there was $38,000 worth of pledges and gifts and the silent auction and things like that. Uh, later one of the uh, tradies come forward and offered his services to help finish off stage one which is equivalent of about seven and a half grand different that's going to make to us so it pushes into over 45 grand uh, and then all that is going to be matched dollar for dollar by a third party which is extremely generous which pushes, pushes us over the 90 grand. Um, 
which is amazing. That's going to make such a difference to setting up the church, setting up the kids' ministry, uh, helping us move forward and planning the next stage. Stage two can happen a little bit quicker, things like that. But thank you, everybody, that's been involved. If you uh, missed out on being a part of that and still able to uh, give... Um, you can still do those bank transfers, just, just noting that it's for the gala, uh, and that'll still add, add, add to that total, uh, which again, is just a great um, privilege to be a part of uh, all that process. We've got a great God. That's what it was all reminding us about, a great God who loves us, blesses us, and calls us to draw near to him. So I'm going to pray now that that will be our experience this morning as we look at his word. Please pray with me. Dear Father, I do thank you for your amazing love to us. When we talk about buildings and fun nights and community, Lord, we, we, can, we can rejoice in that. But Lord, we just praise you this morning for, for being a personal God, a God that reaches out to us, who loves us and will do anything for us. Lord, we just pray now as we sit here this morning, we'll reflect on your goodness, that you'll speak to us, that through your word here, that your spirit will be active in us, that we will draw nearer to you and know you even more personally. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Oscars are something that uh, I think is just a bizarre event or any of those awards ceremonies where all the uh, in, in movie industry, they get together, they congratulate each other on how hard they've been working and how they're changing the world through cinema and seeing the rewards of that. Uh, they think it's a great thing to get together. And to win at the Oscars or the Academy Awards or any of those events, it means so much that according to your peers or according to whoever is voting, whether it's the public or people in the, in the industry, to say that I am the best, you know, to win that prize. I've made it. I'm the best in the field. And you know what that really means? I am the most popular or I am the most loved. They love me and I'm accepted by these guys to get that trophy. Can you imagine being there at the awards? You know, there's, I don't know how many thousands of people there and how many billions of people are watching according to their ratings. Uh, that your name gets read out. That you are called up. You know, you're the winner of the prize. You are the best. You've made it. You are the one to come forward, claim your statue and the lights are on you, the attention's on you, you're up and everybody's looking at you, there are thousands of people there, the billions of people around the world, that you have officially made it. You are the most popular. You are the most loved. And you look down at the other people you've beaten and said, well, you know, it's time to shine on me. I can have the glory. You guys are losers at the moment. But for me, I'm the winner. But before you make your speech, the name's read out that, oh, actually, we've got that wrong. It's somebody else has won the prize. This is awkward. And during that moment of seeing the other person come up, it does happen. During that moment, as you've got to hand the, the gold statue over, you say to yourself, well, this is not so bad. I was pretty close. I almost made it. I am pretty good to be uh, even in the final, I guess. But we hand it over and you go back to your seat and sit with the losers that you were laughing at just a moment before and realise, actually, the world's not made up of all the love I thought it was. See, for some reason, it's driven in us that we like to be loved, we like to be accepted, we like to be um, welcomed in and recognised. We like that sort of stuff, no matter who we are. We don't want to be called a loser. We don't want to be left on the outside. And even when it comes to God, our relationship with God, we like to be loved, we like to be accepted, we like to be included in my relationship with God. Of course I'm one of his family. 
That's what we want from him. And in our efforts to be accepted and loved by God, we, we tend to do all sorts of things. Whether it's work hard. If I'm a good person, I need to be a better person and God will love me more. Or if I'm more religious, that way he'll accept me more or bring me closer in. Or sometimes we might even have the attitude of, well, God's so loving that he accepts all of us, so it doesn't really matter what I do anyway. That God's so loving, of course he accepts me. Well, the passage we've got this morning, I think in, the, in this context, is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Not because it should or shouldn't be there, it should be there. But it turns our thinking upside down about God's love for us and acceptance. In fact, it, what it's saying is your performance and your actions and your need to be accepted will not affect or influence God's decision whether he loves you or not. That's a bit hard to handle. Whether I'm the favourite child or not the favourite child, I like to think that I can influence that love. So this is hard to know. What kind of love is this then that doesn't love me more when I, I do more for him? What we're going to find, it's a love that will blow us away. A love that's more bigger, more exceeding than we can ever imagine. So this passage is helping us see and helping us draw closer to the Father. It's part of a series we started last week looking at the Trinity and how the Father works, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, uh, what holds them together and what, what has them in common, which is what we saw last week, the love that makes three become one. This week talking about Father, next week the Son, following week the Holy Spirit and how that works. But this week helps us to draw near to him to understand what makes God the Father tick. What gives him the heart that he's got? What pleases him? And what does it mean for me that if God's like that, how should I live and act towards him? I'm going to do something really tacky this morning and stick with a movie theme. Uh, structure. We're going to look at a few different movies. The Lion, if you've seen Lion, The Shack, which is a movie that's coming out soon, and A Safe Place and Landing at Star Wars at the end. Stick with me. We're going to stick to scripture. But they're, they're, they're very helpful pictures when we get to them. But to start off this journey, if this is the most shocking passage in scripture that turns our idea of God upside down, this has got to be the most shocking verse of the Bible. Uh, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Just keeping it short and sweet for a moment. He chose me before I even took a breath, before I was even born. He chose me before I even created the world. That's a long time ago. When we think of that, I mean, when I saw that as a younger man, when I was in my mid-teens, uh, I thought, I'm, I'm comfortable with that verse. I'm okay because what that shows is God really knows what he's doing because he does want me on his team. I am worthy. He knew I would turn out to be a good guy. So I grew up as a kid going to church every Sunday uh, in my mid-teens. I went to uh, what you'd call a pretty rough sort of high school. Uh, and to be a non-smoker, non-drinker, non-swearer in that school, I shone out as the religious kid. I was the guy God wants. Of course God wanted me on. He's glad he's got me on his team. He, he needed me on his team there. It's like, of course God knew what he was doing, picking me before the creation of the world. But if we want a reality check, is what I got in my teens, we just read a little bit further on in chapter 2. We didn't get there in our Bible reading, but if you've got your Bible open or it's up on the screen, chapter 2, and Paul uh, gives his readers, says, look, it's good that God's doing all this, but here's a reality check. He says from verse 1, As for you... You are dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world 
and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. See, what he's talking about there is, is, is when we're born, we follow our, sin, our natural nature, our sinful nature, he says, which is not God's team at all. It's actually Satan's team. He's the prince of the air, demon that gets around and guides us, steers us away from God, and we just get swept along in that. We're not on God's team. We're not on God's team. And when we think about that, we go, well, surely I haven't killed anyone. I haven't done any major crime, anything like that. But, you know, when you look deep down in your heart, when I follow my natural desires, I might have, I might have thought about stuff. I might have thought about people. I might have wished they were dead. I don't talk to them or I say things that I shouldn't say, think things that I shouldn't think. They might as well be dead or they're dead to me anyway. But God says, I know what's going on in your heart. I know what your natural desires are. And it's not God's ways their own ways so he says in this little section like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath wrath we're not on god's team we're on satan's team when we're following him and when it talks about god's wrath and getting what we deserve those people aren't on god's team the new testament often uses this word uh gehenna which talks about uh sometimes translated as hell or a fiery pit or things like that but it's actually a word that describes uh, the rubbish tip outside Jerusalem. And what it's describing is a visual picture of what this is like, this punishment of this as a rubbish tip. And it's not like a rubbish tip today. You go there today and you've got all these drop-off zones, all for your recycling and plastics and paper. You know, we're talking first century Jerusalem. There's no paper and glass and plastic to recycle. What do they put in their rubbish bins? Well, there's food and scraps that have gone off. So you've got to get rid of them, you throw them out. Uh, your animals that might have died, you've got to throw them out, says rotting bodies. Even people who couldn't afford a funeral got dumped out in the tip. So you can imagine the smell there, the stench that's coming out of there. So they light it up, they try and burn it, and in fact, as they're burning all this stuff, the smell that comes out of that as well is quite unique. Uh, if you've smelt a, a burning carcass of animal or anything, but then what happens then is the fire never goes out. Because as the fire tends to burn that pile, more stuff gets kept added and added. So it's a, the fire just never goes out. It's always burning. And if you're a poor, poor person in that area and you're, you're scratching to, to just live, so often, often those people would hang around the tip to see if there's any leftover food or anything that might be tipped there, uh, which is a very bad place to be. If you're living in poverty, you're living around the tip like we might see in third world countries today trying to find enough food to live where there's lots of disease and often it's just a matter of time before uh, you'll end up catching something and dying there as well so it's a bad place this Gehenna but what he's saying is if if we follow our natural ways our natural desires the sin that comes out in us that we're born with will lead us down that path where our destiny is this Gehenna so if we want to say, God, give me what I deserve, surely I deserve better than this. God's saying, look, if you're not following my ways, that's, that's your destiny. That's where you are. That's the setting, the garbage tip, uh, the punishment that he's talking about. If you've watched the movie Lion, uh, good, you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you haven't, I'm going to give a bit of a... We all know he dies in the end, don't we? I'm not blowing that bit. He doesn't die. Or does he die? 
Does he die? I can't remember now. I'm going to let you... He's still alive. I might have fallen asleep by the end. I can tell you a little bit that I don't think it's a game changer. You don't know now, do you? Does he die? What happens? Uh, Nicole Kidman plays lady, the uh, Tasmanian lady. She doesn't have any children. She adopts two children from India. These kids are in an orphanage. Uh, but in India, 80,000 children a year go missing and end up in orphanages or places like that, whether they are orphans or just missing or abandoned or, or lost. So these two kids, it follows the story of one of the children um, who got separated. Uh, and he's, he's like this kid walking around Gehenna. He's, he's struggling to just survive. He's walking around for scraps. Uh, just to survive. He's got no safety, no security. But then um, through the orphanage, he gets adopted, comes to Australia. Um, and then it follows the story as him and this other Indian boy uh, turn into young men. And there's a stage in the story where uh, things haven't worked out so well for Nicole Kidman's character. One of the sons has just uh, had a lot of issues in his life and he's actually cut himself off from the family. And the main character, the Indian boy, he's uh, been the good kid. He's always been there, he's well educated, he's smart, but he's going through some life troubles himself and he's actually separated himself from his uh, adopted parents as well. But it gets to a point where he sits down with Nicole Kidman's character and he's got this, an apology that he wants to give her. So he sits down with her and he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you weren't able to have your own kids. He says, I'm sorry that uh, when you got us, you must have had high expectations. And now when you look at us, he says, I'm sorry that we've let you down. It hasn't worked out how you wanted. I'm sorry that we've been such a huge disappointment. At that point, Nicole Kidman turns around, or a character turns around and says to her, what makes you think I couldn't have kids? I might have been able to have kids of my own, but we chose not to. We chose to save you. We chose you to give you a better life. We chose to do that. And at that moment, I think if we're looking for an explanation of what's going on here, we might give it a theological term of predestination, God choosing us. I think it's a great example. If we say to God, God, thank you. Now, we know you had a hole in your heart. Actually, Nicole Kidman says, I didn't get you to fill a hole in my heart. I chose it to save you. But if we think that God chooses us to fill a hole in his heart, we've got it wrong. God doesn't need us. It's going quite all right before the creation of the world. Father, Son, Trinity, like uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like we saw last week. I didn't have to do it, God says. But I chose to save you. I chose to give you a better life. I chose to take you out of that Gehenna, the tip, the destiny that's there. I didn't have to, but I chose to do it. That's the best way, I think, to ex explain this whole idea of predestination. God choosing us, his, his heart, his love and compassion is there to go, I'm reaching out to you because I know you can't save yourself. I know this is bad for you, but I want to give you a better life. I want to do that for you. So he chooses us, not because of anything we deserve, not because he knows we're going to be a great son or daughter of his, but out of his love he chooses to do it. So I think it's helpful when we think predestination. That's a big concept, a big theological term. Just think of the line and, and Nicole Kidman's character just going, I don't have to do this, but I'm choosing to save you, is what God does. 
The illustration doesn't fully work out if you watch a movie. There's some other funny things that go on there, but as all good illustrations all break down, I'm going to move on to our next point, The Shack. Um, if you've heard of the book The Shack and maybe even read it, uh, they bring out a movie of it soon. Um, it, it teaches us another lesson, which I'll go on to. But we'll start off with Scripture. Because God's saving us it is big, it's huge. But it's even more significant than that, what we're told in Ephesians here. Uh, see, God saves us is, is a term that is kind of like a legal term. We could say justifies us, that he makes us holy and blameless. So instead of being shunned and pushed out and punished, he's now welcomed us. We can be in his presence because legally we're, not, um, we're right to stand before him as innocent now. But if we go back to Ephesians 1 verse 4, One verse four. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. This bit about choosing us, making us holy and blameless, to be saving us, but there's this little bit in him, meaning Jesus is talking about the rest of the verses fill that out. That in Jesus he saves us to be holy and blameless. It's filled out a little bit more in verse seven. In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So it's through Jesus, talking about Jesus' act of going to the cross, shedding his blood. In fact, we could say instead of us dying at, the, at, at Gehenna, it's Jesus dying in our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. So we can have life. He was the perfect. He was holy and blameless. Let He would shed his blood. He would give his life. To do a swap so we would be seen as holy and blameless the father justifies you or makes you right uh, by sending his son it cost the father to do that to send his son to die instead of you dying the son dies now we'll naturally think of jesus going to the cross it's a very visual picture of, of death and punishment, nails through his hands, nails through his feet, being hung on a cross and just being left to die. And we often think that uh, of what Jesus might have been going through. Jesus, the creator of the universe. Jesus, the perfect, obedient son. Jesus, the one who's done all these miracles. He could have come off the cross if he chose to. But what kept him on the cross? And we often think, well, it's to save us, people like you and me. He stayed there because of his great love for us, which is all true. And we should give Jesus all the praise for that. Uh, we'll be seeing that more closely next week. But in fact, that's, it's true, but it's kind of secondary. He had another reason to stay on the cross that's even more significant to that. The primary reason Jesus stayed on the cross was obedience to his father. That his father commanded him to do it. It was the will of the father. That Jesus did it. And Jesus, being the perfect obedient son, would do it if that's what his father wished. You might be familiar with John 3.16, one of the most famous verses. For God so loved the world. So that's talking about the Father God. It's for God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It wasn't Jesus' choice to do it. It's choice to obey. But it was the Father's act of we need to save these people. We need to give them life. It was the Father's will, it was Father's love, the Father's compassion that said, I'm going to do it even though it's going to cost me. I'm going to be, lose my son through this. The Father does it. 
Again, I don't take anything away from Jesus. He's truly Lord. We want to look at that. But often we focus so much on that point, we forget about what the Father was going through. Well, look at what Jesus was going through when just before he was about to die. He says, Father, uh, why have you forsaken me? Going through the whole separation of death. He's no longer one with his Father anymore. He's cut off from his Father. But also looking at what, what was going through for the Father. Not only was the father going through separation from his dearly loved son, but it was his will that put him there. It was my choice that he ended up there for him to do it. That was, would have been amazing for the father. The love the father has for us to send his son to the cross to go through that separation is enormous. It was the father's will to be there. The father chose to save you for the creation of the world but knowing it was going to cost him at some great cost to give his son if you want a theological term justification he justified us through that but we can't stop there this is like um we're saved that's great that's significant it changes our life changes our world but if we stop there we're missing out on something even more greater because paul goes on to explain the significance of this it's like this but wait there's more the Father not only saves you, kind of gets you out of the tip and gives you life, but he invites you to be a part of the family. In fact, makes you a part of the family. If we go to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the very next verse, that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ according to his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. Talks about, again, the one he loves being Jesus, uh, being sent by his will to save us according to his good pleasure. God took delight in this act of saving us. I'm sure it hurt uh, to, lose, to be cut off from his son like that. But to take pleasure in what? To be adopting us as his sons, as his children. So we're not just saved, but we're a part of his family. I avoided a car accident the other day and I thought, man, I just saved that guy from getting into big trouble. Never met him, not even friends, wouldn't recognise him if you ran into him. You can save somebody like that. But God says, I'm going to save you, but not only that, I'm going to bring you into my family. And I love you. I'm going to count you as one of my children. We might be familiar with the story of the prodigal son where the Jesus tells this story uh, to Jews and Gentiles. He tells the story of a dad and the dad is, is God in the story, God the father. Has two sons. One is one's a very good, well-behaved son, uh, very righteous, but he's he's proud, he's arrogant. The other son is just a rebel. He wants to live his own life, so he takes the inheritance, runs away, um, blows his money, realizes he's better off back with his dad. Comes back with his dad. The question is, what reception will he get? Uh, dad, will he shun him? Will he, you've blown it? You, you've gone now. Don't come back. But he welcomes him back as a true son and restores him you know, with the family ring, with the family robe, with shoes and kills a fatted calf that you'd only do for a family member. You kind of go, wow. Now for that audience, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles like Jews. You're the arrogant older brother Gentiles. You're the wild ones that need to come home. But what if Jesus told the story slightly differently? What if Jesus told the story like this? A father had two sons, father being God. The first son being uh, perfect in obedience, righteous he's the no hint of pride in him he's the perfect older son excellent but the second son 
he, he's a bit arrogant, self-centered, and just wants to do his own thing. Comes to the father, says, I want my inheritance now. God gives him his inheritance. The father gives him his inheritance. Goes, lives the wildlife, goes to the foreign town, blows all his money, finds he's in poverty, but he, he's doing his own thing there. He's, doing, he's probably even too stubborn to come home. But the father says to the eldest son, says, look, I love my son, my wild son, my second son. I miss him. I want him to be back, part of the family. So I'm going to send you to that town to bring him back. You, you're the perfect son. I know you've never done anything wrong. But I'm going to send you to the town to find him, to bring him back at all costs. And I mean it, at all costs. Even if it costs you your life, I want him to come back. So the perfect, obedient son goes to the foreign town sees his ratbag son blowing his money in a bad situation. But to get him out, to rescue him out of that situation, gets himself in a bad situation, which means it does cost him his life. It costs the elder son, the good son, his life, to bring back the rebellious son to enable him to come home. No, the father, knowing that only one son's come home and knowing that it's the, the rebel one, what welcome will he get? Resentful? No. Here's the family ring. Here's the family robe. Here's the fatted calf. Let's celebrate because my son has come home. It's like, it's unbelievable story that, that the father would do that, sacrifice his good, perfect, obedient son for his rebellious child. But just as Jesus told the story to the Jews and Gentiles, and they were all, uh, the Jews were really upset at the story, we can be upset at the story going, what the, that's just not right that a father would give up his son like that. But that's what God does. He does that. Now, God, through his perfect love and Jesus, through his perfect obedience, God will raise him from the dead and bring him home as well. But we've got to feel the weight of being brought home and what cost that was, not just to be saved, talking about something different now, but to be adopted into the family, to be brought in as his children. It's amazing love that God would do that. If we go down a little bit further in Ephesians, it uses uh, all sorts of terminology. I'll just read a few of the verses out. Ephesians 1 verse 14, or if you've got your Bible open there, that he gives us his spirit as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. Who's the only people that gets inheritance? It's the children. The children that get the inheritance. And God says, I'm going to give you my spirit. It's me. So God dwells in us as a seal. You are my son. You, you're fully adopted. You're in the family and looking forward to a great inheritance. In Hebrews, it uses family language, talking about Jesus as our eldest brother. So Jesus, sometimes we get to say, oh, you know, he is Lord. He, you know, he, he deserves glory, honour, respect. We can't call him brother. That's, that's a bit my mate type stuff. But actually, it's the kind of language that he uses. He's truly Lord, truly worthy of our honour and respect. But he's also our eldest brother. Jesus says uh, when he was teaching that, that we should call it Father God, Abba Father, like many more Dad. And he says, as a dad, that changes things, even the way you talk to him. And he teaches them how to pray. He says, when we pray this, this is from Matthew 7, um, he says, which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give him a stone? It's like, if you ask for bread, I'm going to give him bread. Which of you ask for a fish, will give him a snake? And if you ask for fish, I'm going to give him a, a fish. Then we said snake. If you ask for a fish, I'm going to fish. Maybe two fish. But he says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts to those who ask him? He's your Father God. 
your dad who loves to spoil you. He's not going to hold anything back. So come to him, talk to him as a dad for him to bless you. Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a good book of the Old Testament, something you should read this week. Uh, but it talks about Father God. He says, says there in chapter 3, He takes great delight in you, his children. He rejoices over you with singing. You can imagine a dad with a young child trying to put them to sleep. He try to do some singing. Uh, things like that, that God the Father sings over us. Maybe when we're having trouble sleeping, the Father sings over us when we're living our life. He sings over us. It's kind of the difference between having a sponsor child and adopting somebody into family. We have a sponsor child in Thailand, uh, lives in very third world conditions, and the money we send, a bit of encouragement we give him, we hope is going to save him for a better life. But it's very different from us adopting someone into our own family, bringing them into our house, giving them their own room and space and loving them as their own child. But God says, I'm not just going to save you, I'll give you a better life. I'm going to adopt you as a child of mine, welcome you into the house. It's like this love and grace and you know, your inheritance. and He's giving us everything, undeserved, remember. undeserved. In fact, we were the rat bags. We deserve something completely different. But out of his grace, he brings us in. This is where, uh, yeah, if you've read the book or heard about the movie The Shack, uh, it's about, it's, it's not a book that you're going to learn theology about God. I'll just put that out there right up front. Uh, it's got some funny ideas, but it's, got, it's about a guy who's trying to describe, this is the author, trying to describe his experience of God as in Father, Son and Spirit. So how would you describe God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit? So he meets these three different characters at the shack. Uh, so you've got to go, what are these characters like? What are they, what's God the Father like? So the, the novel really plays out where the person goes to the shack, uh, meets this character of God the Father, and he's definitely not what I was expecting because he's a she. He's a woman. Now, no transgender sort of mentioned in the whole story, but the character is a woman. She goes, why would he do something like that? Why would the author make God, where God's very clear, it's a father God, masculine in character. He's not a man, but he's masculine in character. Why would he describe him as a woman? Anyway, I saw an interview with him, and, and of course that's on everybody's uh, question, of why did you put God the Father as a woman? And he says, well, I read the scriptures and see how God is so full of love, so full of compassion for everything he's done for me, and I think of my father, he says, I can't, I can't see that because that's not my experience. In fact, when I look at my friend's fathers, they weren't like that either. So I had to think through... Who is the most compassionate and loving person that I know? And it was a woman. Says, I'm going to put him in as a woman because that's the closest thing I can associate with who that character is. As again, it's not a place where you're going to learn theology, but he makes a good point of how do you describe God's love and compassion? What do you compare it to? It's greater than anything else. I know as a dad who loved my kids to bits that... I can't measure up to this love and compassion. It's kind of unfair to compare me with the Father God because his love is, takes us to another level. That is so great. And his love is so great that he pours that out on us. So often when we think of this um, adoption, you know, think of this, how do you explain God the Father that his love is so great for us? The shack tries to do it in a different way, but how do we do it? It's, it's this tension because... 
In earthly terms, you can't describe it. You can't imagine it or compare it. Okay, the one we've all been waiting for, Star Wars. What has Star Wars got to do with the gospel? I'm going to jump straight into Star Wars. My favourite scene, and I am a child of the 80s, is where Darth Vader's taking on Luke Skywalker, the big tension, crutching the movie, who's going to win? And, Luke's, and, Star, and Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your, son, uh, your father. <laughs> that would be weird. I am your father. And that does confuse Luke. Because he's like, here I'm in battle with Darth Vader. You know, he's on the dark side. He's an enemy. But Luke's grown up without his father. He's wondered, what's his father like? Who is he? I've never met him. And now he, in this battle scene, meets his father. He's going, look, I want to know you. I want to get to know you. I want to, what's the story? Why did you abandon me? Why, did you walk, why are you on the dark? All these questions for the father that I can't know because you're on the dark side, I'm on the light side, and... We've got to kill each. Somebody's got to die here, uh, is the thing. So there's this tension, and I know this is stretching the illustration a bit, but it's kind of like the tension with us where, not that we want to kill God, but how do we know God? We've got all these questions for God. Can we really know our Father God? We've got all these questions. How can we get to know him intimately? How, is he real? Are we expected to have a real relationship with him, real intimacy with him? Or is this like an idea or a philosophy or a uh, theological term that, that he's just there? Sometimes I think um, we fall into that trap of just going, I'm not even sure whether I really am meant to know you personally. You seem too far away. Or other times, which I kind of touched on earlier on, that, that we use a lot of Jesus' language because Jesus brings us to the Father. Jesus is the one who saves us through the cross. Jesus is Lord. Then we go, Jesus, 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 which is worthy. Jesus deserves all the attention he gets. But we concentrate so much on Jesus, the Father is kind of mustn't be that important anymore because it's all about Jesus. We kind of the Father just drops off the radar. So what Paul is saying through this letter is you can actually know Father God. In fact, if you don't have a, a relationship with Father God, you're missing out. That's where we come down to Ephesians, uh, the second part of the reading we had from verse 15. And Paul is saying a prayer. This is my prayer for you as these people in Ephesus, but it's the same for us. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, so that's what saves us, faith in the Lord Jesus, brings into adoption. That's what makes us different to the rest of the world. He's talking to believers here, God's children. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So I'm praying for you that you really know your Father God, your heavenly Dad. Because through that, through Jesus, we can know him better. That we can be enlightened. He used some funny words. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. Know your new identity Know who you are in him. Know your heavenly dad. And in that, know the glorious riches which he's poured out to you. Ongoing grace, ongoing gifts. As well as know the incomparable great, incomparably great power 
that he pours out on us. This is such a great vision of what God desires for us and with us, that God wants that for us. This changes who we are now. We can say, oh, we'll receive all that when we're in heaven, when we're one with God in heaven, none of all this earthly stuff around us. He goes, no, I'm praying for this will happen to you now, that you receive this. That when it comes to uh, our need to be recognised, our need to be accepted, our need to be loved, and in this world we're going to be let down in lots of different ways by people who um, don't know God, but even people who do know God are going to let us down. But even on the hard days, we know we've got a Father God who pulls us in close, a Father God who's just got this overflowing cup of grace and love and compassion on us that wants to hold us close to him. But how do we get to know him? How do we draw near to him? One of my pet hates is sermons that end up with you need to read more and pray more. But there's truth in this one. Um, we need to know him more. This idea of loving God can sometimes be an intellect thing. We read his word and go, yeah, I'm full of love. I read it. It tells me. I just know it up here. Or otherwise, it's a fuzzy feeling. I know God loves me. On those days, I'm really on fire. But then there's those other days where I'm not so often. God seems so distant. So we've got to put the head and the heart together that we know it, that we read it in his word, that he's put it there. His stories, Old Testament and New Testament, tells us about God the Father and his love for his people. That we read those stories and go, I'm one of his people. I'm one of the ones that he's saved us and adopted. But also know it in our hearts to know that I'm not only going to know it in my head and read it, but I'm going to have a relationship that talks to him as well. So when we talk to him, pray to him as a heavenly dad, that, that we can pray to him like Jesus said. Talk to him, almost come to him, say, Lord, thank you for reaching me. Before I even took my first breath, you loved me. Before I even could either prove myself or stuff up, more likely stuff up, you were prepared to give your son for me. Lord, thank you that you not only saved me, justified me, but you gave me true life as one of your children. You brought me close with an inheritance as one of your children. Thank him for all those things. Thank him for his acceptance of us. Thank him for his assurance that even when we fall, even when we muck up, he's always there for us. He's not going to abandon us. And thank you for the inheritance that is guaranteed from what he's done. That's the relationship with the Father that we should not re re reject. But give him time. Pray to him. Warm to him. Know him. Let me pray that this might be a start of a prayer uh, this morning that helps us all on that journey. Pray with me. Dear Father, we do thank you for the great reminder of who you are that you are a God of love and that's not just empty words or a nice fuzzy thing to say, but through your actions that you've shown that you're a God of love, knowing that before we even did anything wrong, that we would let you down, that we would be the sons and daughters that, that run from you, get distant from you, want to live life our own way, but yet you sent your son Jesus at a great cost to come to rescue us at all costs, to even die in our place. Lord, thank you that we are welcomed into your family, not with apprehension or regret, but you rejoice, you celebrate when we come to you. Lord, we thank you that we can be adopted into your family as your children, 
that we claim all the rights as children, call Jesus our older brother, that you sing over us as a father God, that you give us the inheritance that we don't deserve, inheritance for all eternity. Lord, your love for us just poured out and poured out and poured out. Lord, let us dwell on this daily. Let us draw to you daily. Get into your word and hear your word speaking to us. So your spirit reminds us of your great love for us. And Lord, let us come to you in prayer each and every day, knowing that we are safe in your hands, accepted. Lord, thank you again for your amazing love and help us to, that the eyes of our heart might be opened and see it and grow in it every day we walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.